0: I'm Linda van Tilberg for Business News. A landmark ruling by a Delaware court in the U.S. has cancelled Elon Musk's nearly $56 billion Tesla compensation package. The lawsuit was initiated by a shareholder who argued that Musk's pay package was excessive and unjust. The implications of this outcome are far-reaching, particularly for European investors and investors even as far as South Africa – also for companies with outsized compensation packages and corporate boards accused of lax oversight. And with me in the business studios, I'm so happy to have Jeroen van Kwawegen, the co-lead of the New York law firm Bernstein, Littebidge, Berger & Grossman, who was responsible for this exceptional result. Hi Jeroen, so nice to speak to you. Thank you for having me. Well, this is historic win. Can you elaborate on what it actually means? So I think that there are a number of
1: uh, implications of this ruling, and it depends a little bit on the audience. But I think primarily what it means for boards of directors is that they really have to make sure that they're truly independent from the chief executive officer whose compensation package they are negotiating with. I think from an investor perspective, what it means is that it you know, as the world is moving more and more towards an ESG-focused model for investors, I think it shows investors that they have multiple tools in their toolbox to make sure that the uh, executives and the directs of their portfolio companies comply with their fiduciary duties. And I think for the broader public and the broader uh, world, I think it means that it shows that the richest person on earth with a privately owned communications network is still not above the law, uh, at least not in the United States.
0: Well, what implications does it have in the United States, My team movies company away from Delaware?
1: Well, as you probably know, uh, you know Mr. Musk on X said that he was going to do that, and and that's another interesting point, right? Because if you look at the law, the way that works is first, you need to get approval from the board of directors. And then second, you need approval from your shareholders. And Mr. Musk, I think, held I don't really, I'm not a Twitter or an ex so I'm not 100% sure, but I think he held some Twitter poll and said, well, based on the Twitter poll, we're moving it. And it sort of makes the point. It's not his decision to make. He acts like he is controlling everything. And for example, he didn't mention the board. And of course, one of the central tenets of our case is that the board was not independent from him, at least the compensation committee was not independent from him. And he kind it. that's true, right? He's like, well, I'm just going to move my company. It's not his company, right? It is the board's decision, and then it is the shareholders' decision, and neither has been given as far as I know. So, you know, could it be moved to Texas or some other state? Sure, of course, but you need to comply with your fiduciary duties in that respect as well.
0: Well, Richard Tornetto, the guy who brought the case to you, what did he have, nine shares? Does that prove that even the smallest shareholders have a bit of influence? I think
1: it does prove that, you know, in the end, Mr. Musk is held accountable before the law. No matter what the size of the shareholder is, no matter who is actually bringing that case, of course, it needs to be a meritorious case. You know, the United States courts and this particular court in Delaware is a very serious they're not going to entertain uh, strike suits. So you have to have a serious claim and you have to show a judge that this is a serious claim. But well, once you do that, it doesn't matter what the number of shares that you hold to have an audience before an impartial tribunal. I think that's what it really
0: shows. Well, do you think it will influence future compensation packages of CEOs of major corporations like this?
1: I do. There's no doubt that it will. And I know that because... The Mr. Musk's compensation package influenced many uh CEO campus compensation packages after it was initially adopted. Right? What happened is if you if you just take a step back and look at the the way compensation packages work for senior executives, uh, typically what happens is you bring in, you have a compensation committee of the board uh that then looks at the compensation package. And they bring in a compensation consultant. Who normally presents benchmarks, right? To figure out given the size of this company, given the, the type of company, what is a reasonable package? And what happened is Mr. Musk's compensation package was done without such benchmarks, but it became part of the benchmarks that was used for other companies. So there was a pretty influential New York Times article about this, talking about all the different CEOs who got a similar package after Mr. Musk. Much smaller in size, but still much bigger than anything that happened before. So now, one, this compensation package will no longer be part of any benchmark, right? It's been nullified. So that should have an impact on future compensation. And two, I hope what it means is that boards of directors and compensation committees of boards now think long and hard about the compensation packages that they do because that they uh, approve because. It needs to comply with their fiduciary duty. So yes, I do think that this is going to have a direct impact on future compensation packages.
0: So what does this mean for future corporate governments? You mentioned, you know, you said a lot about the fiduciary duty of a board and a CEO. So what does this mean for accountability in corporate governments going forward?
1: Well, initially from a legal perspective, uh, if you look at the judge's ruling, it's 200 plus pages, detailed findings. Uh, But from a legal perspective, the judge applied very well-known, well-established legal precedents. So from a legal perspective, I don't think this moves the needle all that much. Now, from a practical perspective, I do think it has an impact because it's a reminder to everyone that no matter how wealthy and how powerful you are, you're still accountable and that boards of directors... And, you know, uh, interact with certain superstar CEOs still first have to look at their fiduciary obligations. So from that perspective, I do think it has an impact. But from a legal perspective, I honestly don't see a lot of novel legal concepts in this ruling. It's, it's a well-established, and basically what the, law, what, what the judge did was take all the facts that we established at trial, looked at all the facts in their totality, and then applied a legal lens that is well-established.
0: So is there any lessons in this for investors? Should you look at the compensation of the companies you invest in or do people just say, woo, Apple shares, woo, Tesla shares?
1: So I don't think that it's... So look, let me start by saying I'm a capitalist, okay? I think that people who perform well should be rewarded well. So I'm not sure that the size of the compensation package for CEOs or senior executives itself is something that I would be particularly interested in if I was an investor. Right, but I've been doing this for a very long time. And and I, you know, I'm a fiduciary duty lawyer. So what I would be very interested in is the overall governance of the company and how that is structured. Do you have a truly independent or majority independent board of directors that looks out for the interests of all shareholders? And if you don't, that I think is a red flag. Because now that will allow the type of self-dealing that we alleged and I think proven a trial here. That is never going to be good for the overall company and the shareholders, right? If you allow self-dealing by a superstar CEO or any other insider. So I would look at the overall governance when I would make my investments.
0: Well, what about the superstar CEO who might have his brothers on the board? So, I, you know, look, I
1: think people are people. Everybody at some level is human. And I don't particularly I don't have a particular problem with having one or two directors on a board that happen to be very close. I have no problem, but I do have a problem if a majority of the board is not independent, and if people on particular committees are not. Independent. Right here, we are talking about the compensation committee because it was a compensation package. We can talking about we can talk about an audit committee or a compliance committee. If you think about those committees. Those should be entirely independent when you have potential self dealing by insiders. So, here, for example, the compensation committee, Mr. Musk's brother, Kimball, was not a member of that committee. That we proved at trial, but the other members were not independent either. But I think just having one or two people on the board who are not independent from the superstar CEO by itself is not necessarily a problem.
0: Well, this was a superstar gold case and it's such a high profile one. Have you had other cases like this and successes like this?
1: So, I have had other cases like this. I've never had a success like this. I mean, this is, I think, the biggest, as far as I know, the biggest uh, uh, opinion. so still have to have a final judgment, but this will be the biggest judgment in potentially US history, right? You mean, you know, you, you named the number at the outset. I think this is bigger than the tobacco settlements that we saw a number of years ago. This is, I think this is bigger than the opioid settlements that we have seen uh, negotiated by the states. So, a bigger success? No. Uh, have I had other successes? Yes. But quite frankly, I've also had failures, right? It, nobody wins everything uh, and nobody is, is, is uh, uh, entitled. So, I've had successes, but I've also had failures, and that comes with the job.
0: So, so tell us a bit more about yourself. Why this interest in corporate governance? So,
1: you know, I should probably know from my name. I'm originally from the Netherlands. I grew up there. I was an attorney in Amsterdam, actually, and uh, I moved to the United States twenty three years ago and just restarted my life and my career. Um, so, I went back to law school here, and then I was a corporate litigator at a big firm called Latham Milwaukee, and Watkins. They have about two thousand lawyers have the world. Um And then, after about five or six years, a headhunter called me asked if I wanted to be a shareholder lawyer, and I jumped at the chance um because a couple of reasons: one is that you asked by my interest in governance um i i'm 'm entrepreneurial by nature. I like to be in charge I like to have uh the moving advantage i don 't like to be in the defense I like to move so then shareholder lawyers, plaintiffs lawyers are more natural because that's when we need to take the initiative, right? Um, and then what I like about the governance aspect, and securities this litigation also, there's a, a profoundly human element and a human interaction in all of my cases, right? Ultimately, the cases that I deal with are about greed, including Mr. Musk's case. It's about greed. And, and there's a, a fundamentally human element. So when I take a deposition or when I interact with a judge, I'm building connections and I'm trying to figure out what motivated people, what were their incentives, how did people act or not act on those incentives. And that to me is just, right? Those relationships, those interactions, taking the initiative. I mean, I couldn't find a better job uh, if I tried. (laughs)
0: Um, So do you think this would take it, it, it lead to a shift in how tech giants are held accountable generally. Because people so, kind of think they're almost a law unto themselves when, you know, in, in certain respects.
1: I think that's a fair question. Um, I, I don't think it is surprising that there have been a fair number of cases involving technology and especially uh, Silicon Valley. Um, you know, when you think about it, many of them, I don't know of all of them, but many of them aim rant, and all think that they're, you know, above all rules and that everything and every, everybody should just bow to them. Um, and I do think that if you have a corporate culture that allows that, then those types of people are going to act on those self-interests and greed is greed, will overreach. So I do think that at some level, at some point, um, the people in Silicon Valley specifically will start taking note. That you know your reputation matters as a director, and that you will be held accountable if you breach your fiduciary duties. So I do think that there's going to be an impact, but but in all fairness, reality suggests that that's going to take quite some time because there's this culture of impunity. I think in Silicon Valley, where where people have a very hard time realizing that the law applies to them, and 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 you know. That's really not bad for my business, right? I don't think it's good for shareholders, but it's not bad for my business because that just means there will be other cases in the future.
0: Well, we mentioned the and uh, what effect could have in the United States. What effect could it have elsewhere in Europe and, you know, even South Africa for corporations, for big businesses? So I think
1: it goes back to my original uh, answer about the different levels. I think on a director level, at a director level, I don't think it's going to make a big difference because they're entirely different legal regimes, right? So when I think about Europe, many countries in Europe uh, have a stakeholder model where directors don't necessarily have to think about the companies and the, and the shareholders first. So it's much harder to hold directors accountable in many countries in Europe. And the the, the reputation of directors is more important. So the enforcement of of rules very often in Europe, and I think in South Africa, uh, would be more through informal, uh, director-to-director kind of discussions, or major shareholders picking up the phone and saying, you know, what you did is really not okay. So I think from that perspective, I don't think the impact is huge for South Africa or people in Europe. I think from an investor perspective, the impact is very significant, both in South Africa and in Europe. Um, investors, pension funds, asset managers have global portfolios. Um, They don't just invest in their own country or in their own region, Mm -hmm. they have global portfolios. And I think what this decision shows is that they have an additional tool that they can use, especially in the United States, if companies in their portfolio that happen to be American companies, directors are misbehaving. And and like I, I referenced earlier, increasingly investors in Europe, and I assume also in South Africa, I don't know for a fact, but I assume, are looking at ESG, right? Environmental, social, and governance type uh, uh, norms. And when you do that and you start thinking about this as a governance case, which it is, it is a governance case, I think investors in South Africa, investors in Europe will increasingly start thinking, hey, I have an additional tool in my toolkit." to hold directors and superstar CEOs or other CEOs accountable if they act on their greed, are not independent, and enrich themselves at the expense of the company or the other shareholders.
0: Okay, last question. What next is Mr. Musk going to appeal? What are the options?
1: So this is an outright victory, right? There's like a 100% victory for the shareholders and for the company, and it's an outright defeat for Mr. Musk. So, rationally speaking, you know, if you have the right of an appeal, you would appeal. Like, he can just fold his cards and walk away, but I don't think that that would be rational. It's possible, but it's not rational. So, I expect that Mr. Musk will appeal. I expect that defendants will appeal. And this is in Delaware State Court, right? It applies Delaware State law. So, the right of appeal is to the Delaware Supreme Court. There's no intermediate level of appeal. Uh, that's an automatic appeal that Mr. Musk and the other defendants can take. I suspect that they will do that. And then assume for a moment that the Delaware Supreme Court affirms the judgment, which, again, I say is very well-grounded, in fact, and well-established legal precedent. But let's say that the Delaware Supreme Court affirms. That's kind of the end of the road. Some people ask me, well, what about the U.S. Supreme Court? Could Mr. Musk petition the U.S. Supreme Court? And the answer is anybody could petition the U.S. Supreme Court. But here, the chances of the U.S. Supreme Court doing anything are extremely robust because this is a state law issue where the state courts have supremacy over the federal system. So under the U.S. federal system, this Delaware trial court is, has more authority and more authoritative over Delaware state law issues than the U.S. Supreme Court, and there's absolutely nothing for the U.S. Supreme Court to do. So the chances that the U.S. Supreme Court would even entertain that petition are remote, to say the least.
0: And you expect to, the court to affirm it?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, every, all litigation has risk. Like I said earlier, I've won cases, I've lost cases. So, you know, uh, as a lawyer, it's, it's hard to say, well, I'm 100% certain of anything. Like, you, you know, I don't want to be wishy-washy, but that's very difficult. Uh, to say, but I think it is very likely, like I said, it's a 200-page decision grounded in fact and the Delaware Supreme Court will give deference to the trial court's findings of fact or credibility determinations. There's not going to be new testimony before the Delaware Supreme Court. So uh, I think it's much more likely than not that the Delaware Supreme Court looks at this well-reasoned, well-established you know, applying normal precedent decision and say, you know, this is this uh, this is this is a good decision and I'm going to affirm it. But do you have 100% certainty? No. But I think the overwhelming likelihood is that that's what's going to happen.
0: Well, we're all watching this with interest. Well, Jeroen van Kwavering, thank so much for speaking to us early in the morning in New York. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.